turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm going to be focusing in upon two verses today. Over the last few months, we've been thinking about the glorious nature and character of God, and we finish today as we think about God who is faithful. God is faithful, the major theme of this morning as we've been worshiping the major theme of this message that we are looking at together today. Our God is glorious beyond our comprehension. That's the one thing I hope that we've all concluded during this series is he's so great and so glorious and so wonderful and so magnificent beyond our ability to fully grasp, but yet somehow by his spirit stirs in our hearts a knowledge of this glory that profoundly changes us. And may he do that again for us today as we think about his faithfulness. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the invitation that you have issued to each of us here today to come to you. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is among us to bring us to you. And we, we want to know truly a tangible sense of what we were singing that we'd be caught up in the Father's arms. We'd know what it's like to be a child of God. We'd know what it's like to give our lives fully to one who is utterly faithful, utterly truthful, honest, committed, there through every day of our lives, there to the end, there forever. Lord, I pray, please, would you help us? Would you help me, Lord, as, as we go through these verses And would you be glorified, I pray, in Jesus' name. God's word is food for our souls. Do you know that? God's word is bread. Jesus described the word of God like that. Feed on it. I feed on it. I do the will of God. The will of God is like food for me, nourishes me, strengthens me. And in a day and age like this that we're living in, where we are fed so many false hopes, I invite you today to come with that posture, yes, to receive a gift, also to receive a a feast, as it were, as we turn to God's word together, as we think upon it. These are the words of Jesus to us. These are the words of God to us this morning. What comes into your mind, I wonder, when you think of the idea of faithfulness? Comes into your mind. Just wonder what that might stir in you. The idea of faithfulness. I think it's probably fair to conclude in a room of this size, waves of emotions and different emotions probably come to mind. For some, maybe negative connotations of guilt, of disappointment, of hurt, and of pain. Maybe for some, it's aspirational. Maybe for some there's a gratitude of a faithful relationship that you've known or you're in. There will be a mix of emotions when we think about faithfulness in 
the room today. Now, I will also say this to you, that if you are looking for an answer to the question of what is faithfulness by looking in the mirror or looking horizontally to men and women around you, you are grasping at straws. You are not going to find the kind of confidence for what true faithfulness is unless I'm just speaking about myself here, right? If I'm looking within to find an answer for what faithfulness is. But we have one we're invited to look to this morning that we've been urged to look to this morning who is utterly faithful, dependable, truthful, committed, and there for you. And as we draw upon this this big theme of God's faithfulness, what we're going to do in these verses is we're just going to progress through Paul's line of thought. This is what's referred to as a benediction. It's a a way of concluding a letter with a prayer of God's blessing, for God's blessing. And it builds to this point where it concludes with a big kind of God is faithful, God's going to do it. So we're just going to work through this Together, The first thing that we heard Paul say is this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify you completely. If someone were to come to you today and say to you, what's the big thing that you want God to do for you? What's the big prayer for you right now? The chances are we don't give a big enough answer to that question. You might think of a particular circumstance in your life that you're wanting breakthrough in, but when Paul offers up, as it were, a big prayer for these people who he loves, he says that God would sanctify you thoroughly. That God would sanctify. Now, what does that word sanctify mean? To be sanctified is to be made holy. The process of being made holy is the theological word sanctification. So for the Christian, what is God's primary purpose in your life? Where is God primarily wanting to take you? What is it that God is primarily wanting to do? I would put to you that God's primary purpose in your life isn't actually to fulfill the various words that you may have had spoken over you. I would say that God's primary purpose in your life is not to provide you with the dream house and the dream job that you are longing for. I would say that God's primary reason for calling you out is to sanctify you, is to make you holy, is to set you apart. And I'd go further on to say, well, what does that mean? Because the idea of living a holy life, certainly in our culture, doesn't sound very exciting But the Bible goes on further to personalize it in that we're told we're being conformed into the image of God's Son. What does it mean for us to be sanctified, to be made holy? Simply put, it's to be made like the happiest person who ever walked upon this planet. It's to be made like the one who knew more glory and wonder and delight in the creation of this universe than anyone else has ever done whilst walking this planet. It's to be like the one who was more patient, more generous, more kind, more peaceful, more full of unrivaled joy and hope and purpose and confidence in life than anybody else 
To be sanctified, to be made holy, simply is to be like Jesus. That, let me tell you, is the wonderful goal of becoming a Christian. And we stop too far short so often because we obsess over the things that we feel are right for us and that we want in our lives and we stop too far short when God says to you, do you know what, I've got something so much bigger for you than you could ever imagine. Here's what I want to do. I want to make you like my son and he's amazing. And I want you to know what he knew so that when you look upon someone who's hurting, you feel compassion. And so that when you eat your food this afternoon and you have your lunch, you feel grateful. And when you go to bed at night and you rest your head upon your pillow, you sleep peacefully. You think, well, you've not even seen my house. Yeah, but Jesus slept peacefully in a boat during a storm. So you can sleep peacefully. He wants to make you like Jesus. It's a sanctification process. It's becoming more holy. Set apart. Set apart from what? Well, you could say ultimately set apart from the work of Satan. Set apart from the work of evil. Set apart from the work of sin. Set apart from the values and the passions and the worship of this world which, which rival the worship of the one true God. You're set apart from those things. You're called to something different and better and more wonderful and more glorious. And you know if this work of sanctification has begun in your heart because you already begin to recognize those things for what they are. They fall short. They disappoint you. They leave you wanting more. They don't ever quench the thirst and the hunger. And then when you start to taste and see that the Lord is good, you know that's what I need. That's what I need. So, Paul is longing that we would grow in sanctification, in holiness, in becoming like Jesus. I love this passage in Acts 4, verse 13. These are the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They've received the Holy Spirit, and they, they pass a cripple, and they lay hands, and they command this man to walk. He gets up, and he walks, and he's healed, and there's all kind of kerfuffle and 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 disputing, what's going on here? The crowd's murmuring and talking about it. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. That's the officials of the temple. They're brought to speak to them on account of this uh, furore that's happening. What's going on? And they command them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And it says this in verse 13. When they observe, that's the Sanhedrin, these officials, these Pharisees, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated, the Greek word, by the way, for uneducated is idioti, right? (laughs) You don't need to be an expert in the Greek to work out which word we derive from that one. When they saw that they were idiots and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized they'd been with Jesus, when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, to university, when you are talking to friends at the school gate, that's, our, that's my longing for you. That's God's longing, is that they would see you've been with Jesus. 
That's sanctification. You've been, you know Jesus. You're like Jesus. You're becoming like Jesus. You're different. You're set apart. You're holy. Oh, it's not, it's not being religious and it's not being holier than thou. It's not going, oh, I would never touch a glass of wine because I am holy. There's a sense of a presence about you. There's a sense of the presence of God. You're an, hey, there's nothing special about any one of us. There is one who is special, right? And, and it's him that we need to and want to draw people's attentions to. When they saw they had been with Jesus, sanctification. Now, what's interesting in this text to me is what Paul links sanctification to in this particular instance. So, verse 23 again. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now, that strikes me as interesting because if holiness is what God is wanting to achieve in me, then logically you'd think that Paul would write, may the God who is holy sanctify you completely. So if I want to grow in holiness, I need someone who's really holy to help me to get there, and we know that God is holy, holy, holy. Yet it's interesting to me that Paul doesn't go, the God who is holy will sanctify you completely, but rather says, the God of, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now, that's interesting. Why would he choose to speak of God's peace? And when we think of peace, what do we think of? What, what's being said here? Now, what this isn't is passivity. So this isn't God saying, this isn't Paul saying, may the God who's just so chilled, he's so chilled, sanctify you completely. He's peaceful. Biblical peace is actually an active and powerful, very powerful idea. One of the most famous passages in the Bible that deals with this is in Philippians 4, verse 6 to 7. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For those of you who have been Christians for any length of time, that will be a familiar passage to you, I'm sure. That word guard could also be translated as fortify. The peace of God will fortify your heart and your mind. What's a fort? A fortress is meant to be this impenetrable brick structure to keep you safe in battle. Paul intentionally uses that word. So the peace of God comes to form this impenetrable wall around your heart and your mind. Now, we understand the way God's made our bodies in such a way to protect our most vulnerable organs. I've got a hard head. I've got a skull protecting my brain. I have a rib cage protecting my heart. And you'd better believe that your spiritual organs need to be protected by something solid. And so what does God do? He builds a wall around you, which is his peace. Why peace? When we think of God's peace, we're thinking of, so the, a kind of the antithesis of peace would be disorder and chaos. Peace is, it's ordered. It's ordered. So God's peace is, is, is an assurance of God's command over the whole universe 
including our lives. Who wants that kind of, who, more to the point, who feels like they need that kind of assurance and peace? Schools start back on Monday. Who needs that? We've got lots of change coming. We're stepping into September, October. I don't know about you, but for me, that's the most intense. It's the busiest time of the year. There's lots happening, and there is every opportunity for the evil one to try and coax you and tempt you into anxiety and into worry and even into despair to stop you from sleeping because all you can think about is the thing that's coming up And because this is what anxiety do, anxiety is a false prophet that says to you it's going to be terrible, it's going to be bad, and here's what's going to happen. And Jesus says, just don't worry about tomorrow. He says, don't worry about it. Paul says, do not be anxious. In fact, here's what we're going to do. As you pray, and as you thank God for the things in your life, we're going to build this fortress around your heart and around your mind. And it's peace. So, so Paul says the God of peace will sanctify you. So that's something of what peace is. But why does he choose to use that term in this context? May your whole spirit, soul, and body, that's the entirety of who you are, be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's why I think he goes for peace. You and I need, as Christians, we need to be constantly reminded that Jesus is coming back soon. Jesus is returning soon. Do you live with the imminency that Jesus is about to return? Do you live with that sense that at any moment the heavens could open and the trumpets could sound and every eye will suddenly see Jesus Christ coming in power and in glory? It's going to be unbelievable. So the Bible says he's coming soon. And and in the early church, they were constantly reminding one another, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And there was a sense of longing, Jesus, please come, we want to see you come. And what that would do is, it it would focus you. It would focus you on what's coming today and what's happening tomorrow. It would put it into perspective And what it will do is it will motivate evangelism and sharing of the gospel. And it will motivate ruthlessness with sin in your life. And you're going to deal with it. If you know Jesus is coming tomorrow, there's a particular thing maybe in your life that you're prone to doing that you will not be doing that night. There's a, there are particular things which you might find you drift to because you lose a sense of confidence maybe in God's ability to stir your heart. I don't know what it might be, but when you know Jesus is coming, it changes everything. And if I'm getting lazy, and if I'm getting casual, and if I'm not praying, and if I'm not killing sin in my life, it's probably because I've forgotten that Jesus could come any moment. And so we need to be reminded of this reality. So when Jesus comes in glory like this, there's going to be something that's, in a sense, very corporate, for we will all see him. And then there's going to be something that's going to be immediately personal. I don't know how it works in terms of the logistics. (laughs) But the Bible says we stand before him. We stand before him. 
we will see his face. And there will be a judgment. There will be a judgment. Your life will be before God. And he will see your life. And he will see the entirety of it. And there will be a judgment. The things which you do very well, like keeping from others, he knows. Right. How does that make you feel? The thought of seeing God before you and him looking at you and seeing everything. Now, if you're reaching in that moment for something good in your life, if you're trying to find out on balance, you're in trouble. If you're looking at your CV in that moment, you're desperately in trouble. If in that moment you are just hoping that you're not as bad as everybody else, you're on flimsy, fragile ground. And the Christian does not look to their own performance in that moment, right? Where do you look? In that moment, as a Christian, you look to Jesus. You look to the cross. You look to the empty grave. You say, Jesus did it. That's our boast. That's where our confidence is. Now, there's a judgment for Christians, and there's a judgment for those who've chosen not to confess Christ as Lord. The judgment for Christians, incidentally, and this is an incidental comment, is, a, is to do with rewards, So there are rewards that are issued. There is no judgment for sin for Christians in that moment. Do you understand that? So all of the terrible things that you may well have been thinking about just a moment ago, that you're like, I know God has seen me do that. It's like, well, don't bring that up. That was paid for at the cross. That's dealt with as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Hallelujah. There's no judgment for sins if you put your faith in Jesus. Say, Jesus has done it for me. But there are rewards to be issued. But if you aren't trusting in Jesus, then in that moment when you stand before God, and we believe you will, you can choose not to believe that, then you do have to rest upon your own efforts. I think that's a frightening thought. When you can accept the righteousness, the goodness, the perfection of Jesus Christ today for yourself. So I think Paul says, may the God of peace thoroughly sanctify you. I think he says that because we know that this thought of Jesus returning could stir in us anxiety, could potentially stir in us some kind of worries. The God of peace is going to thoroughly sanctify you so that you will be kept blameless, blameless. So I suppose a good question today is, how can I know if I'm one of those people? How do I know if when Jesus returns, if Jesus returns tonight, how do I know if he sees me and finds me to be blameless? We've obviously already touched on it, but I want to look at what he says next. He who calls you. He who calls you. 
The calling of Christ is a crucial aspect of what it means for us to ultimately be found to be blameless. The calling of Jesus. Have you been called by him? Have you known Jesus call you? Have you been called out? So we speak of the gospel call. What's the gospel call? The gospel call is essentially what Rob did a moment ago. Where Rob said, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. The gospel call says that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. The gospel call says that Jesus is God become man and he suffered and he died and he resurrected and he lived the perfect life. And he did it for you and if you would receive that gospel call into your hearts, you will be saved. That's to be called. Many people hear that with their ears. The Bible teaches perhaps not many receive it in their hearts. And in Acts, we find occasions where this is described this moment. In Acts 2, when Peter is preaching the gospel, it says they were cut to the heart. And they cried out, what must we do? And later on in Acts, there's a lady called Lydia. In the same way, it says that her heart was opened to receive this message. So how do I know if I've been called? Well, has your heart been moved and stirred by the message of Jesus Christ? So when you consider the cross, do you do what Dave Stainer did just a moment ago, which was, oh, right? I love that. Dave, I did notice it. That's the response of someone who goes, I know the goodness of the cross for me. My heart's been moved. So that when we come and break communion, we're not just take communion, we're not just going through the motions here. We're going, Jesus died for me, thank you. In my heart, this message lives. Right? If that's you, then you've been called. You've been called. Jesus said, come and follow me. So Jesus says to the disciples, come and follow me. They left everything to follow him and to be with him. They followed him and he led them. And Jesus takes hopeless cases. He does it time and time again. And throughout the Bible, we have occasion after occasion of people who are hopeless for the thing they're called to do. Abraham was told in his old age, having never had a child, his wife, who had never had a child, that he was going to become a father. He was going to become a father of nations. Moses, who was a murderer, who was an exile from Egypt, was told, I'm going to send you into Egypt and you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. You're going to do something amazing. Gideon, who was a young man, wasn't even respected in his family, was told, you're going to lead the armies of God into battle against the great Midianites. This is what's going to happen to you. David, who was called a runt, was told, you're going to defeat the biggest, ugliest, baddest giant we've ever seen. You're going to go and fight him, and you're going to defeat him. We could go on and on. Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Paul, who was a persecutor of the church. You show me an Old Testament character, you show me a biblical character, and I will show you a hopeless case called by Jesus and transformed to do something amazing. So that's the point. God doesn't take, I am going to find the most impressive, the most capable, the most able, and I'm going to need somebody like that because, let's be honest, what we're doing doesn't really have much power. That's totally nonsense. That's utter nonsense. There is power in the gospel, power to change lives, and it's proven by hopeless cases. So when Rob said, do you feel inadequate that you're not good enough? Great. That's what you're meant to feel. That's the gospel inadequate, unable to do it, yet called, come and follow me. The people less likely to go 
are those who feel capable, who feel like they've got it all together, who feel like they've done well, who are proud of themselves. And so you need to become like a child to receive the gift that Jesus has for you today. You're called. The one who is called is faithful. Faithful. He is faithful. He will never let you down. He will never disappoint you. He will ensure that you finish the race. He doesn't say, come and follow me and then give up because after two minutes of following him, you've fallen over. The language of be like a child, like a parent with a child, the patience, the love that you have for your child, that's how, that's how God sees us. Here's a promise, Philippians 1 verse 6. It's right at the end of my PowerPoint. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is a promise to you. So for each and every one of you, each of you who knows that you've been called, and we defined the sense of being called by the Spirit stirring in this affection for Jesus, if that's you, then the promise is he's going to complete the work that he started in you. So you know it's started. He's saying, I'm going to complete it. So I'm going to take you on. I'm faithful. I'm faithful. It finishes by saying, he will do it. Okay, so what does that mean? What's our responsibility? Does that mean, okay, so we can just that switch off? Let God. No, no, that's, that's not true. So again, let's just think theologically for a moment. To be saved, the Bible clearly teaches, is a miracle. You cannot do anything about it. You can't have faith in Jesus Christ unless the Spirit has come to your heart to enable you to see. It's a miracle that happens. But that rescuing, the Bible, we talk about justification, to be made righteous before God, so I can stand before God on that judgment day, not guilty, Right? That happens in an instant so that thief at the cross could die having lived an awful life and appear in paradise with Jesus because he's justified. The sanctification for him was instantaneous, but it's a process for you and I. And actually, there's some effort. So think about Abraham. Abraham, there was a miracle that he had a baby, but he still had to sleep with his wife. Moses still had to walk to Egypt and still had to go to Pharaoh. But it was God that did it. David still had to pick up a stone and sling it at Goliath. But God aimed it right into his temple. Gideon still had to blow his trumpet. But it was God that scattered the Midianites. So there is an effort that you and I are called to. And when your heart's been opened to receive this gift, there's a new found love and passion for God that livens you, enlivens you to follow him, to walk with him, to obey him, to trust him, to do what he's asked you to do. Oh, he will do it for sure. And no one goes, oh, wasn't Abraham amazing? And wasn't that an incredible, what was going on there? I mean, we go, it was a miracle. But there was an obedience. Obedience necessarily comes after faith. But he is the faithful one. 
He is the faithful one. It's his work at the end that we all give glory to God for. I'm going to finish just by sharing. Uh, yesterday, one of the, when I prepare my sermons, I love distractions. I'm easily distracted. Usually it's phone calls from Steve Chick. And I was making a curry for friends on Friday evening. I had various distractions on Friday as I was preparing the sermon. I like it. It helps me. I don't switch off. I'm kind of... And one of the things I did, I thought about, so friends of ours have recently joined a church near where we, uh, I grew up. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to check that church out, just see what's going on. And I went to their sermons page, and, and I saw a sermon preached by a guy that I knew as a child. And I thought, oh, he's there now. Oh, and he's, he's preaching. He's an older man now. So I, I started listening to this sermon and he said, oh, I'm still getting to know some of you. You don't know me very well, but some of you do know. Some of you know that a few months ago, my, my dear wife died. Now, I knew, I didn't know that. That was news to me. And uh, we, had the, we had the funeral a couple of months ago. And, and he said, and you might be thinking, what on earth? No, sorry, it wasn't a couple of months ago. It was 10 days ago. It was 10 days before. And he said, you're probably thinking, what on earth is this poor guy doing, speaking, when he's grieving? And he said, I want to tell you. She loved Jesus all the way through to the end. And this is literally said, he was faithful to her all the way to the end. And she had faith and hope and confidence. And I want to tell you about that Jesus today because I want you to know that because I know that. He's a good God. He's faithful. And I thought, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. That's what you can know today. You can know faith in a faithful God. Why don't we...